be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Start reading in verse 1. Gospel of John chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they them, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had uh, conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So we come to a point in the Gospel of John where we're we're making a, uh, a clear turn into a different section of the book. Um, there's some what of a cycle in John, really chapter 2 through chapter 4, where Jesus begins in Cana, He ends in Cana. There's not a whole lot of interaction with um, the Jews in a contentious type way, certainly not in a way that we find here in John 5. What we're going to see over John chapters 5 through 11 is what some have called the, uh, the festival cycle of the book. Um, almost every chapter or at least every story in this book, in this section, I mean, is going to take place in some Jewish festival. Some of those are named, some of those are not named. Uh, so in John chapter 5, there's one that's not named. Uh, whenever you get into John chapter 6, you see there's another festival. When you get into John chapter 7, it's right before one. You get into John chapter 8, John chapter 9, and you'll see that there's, there's this marked, um, um, circumstance of a Jewish festival. And so what John is doing as he's writing here is he is making a, 
uh, again, a, a distinction, a contrast. The reality that Jesus Christ and what Jesus brings is far better than what these festivals could hold out. These times of, of uh, Jewish festivals. Now, in order to really see the contrast in John chapter 5, you've got to take the chapter as a whole. I didn't think this morning was probably the morning to do that. Um, 47 verses, and it's, there's a lot packed in there. So we're going to look at these first 16 verses just to kind of get the setup of what I think the chapter is really going to be focused on as we look into it in the coming weeks. This is a story that's familiar to most of you. The pool of Bethesda. A man who is crippled and um, afflicted there for 38 years. In some ways, it's kind of a strange story. Um, Jesus' comment, or maybe I should say Jesus' question to the man is a very odd question. You've got a man that's been crippled, possibly laying there for 30 some odd years. We don't know that he was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, but we do know that he was lame for that long. And when Jesus comes up, the first question he asks is, will you be made whole? Now that's just the King James English way of saying, do you want to get better? Okay. What a question, right? What a question. And yet we know that whenever Jesus asks a question, it's never inappropriate and it's never silly. And so the, the title of the message this morning is just going to be that question. Will you be made whole? Will you be made whole? This man had a physical infirmity. We're going to see that this physical infirmity really is descriptive and illustrative of the spiritual lameness that we all have, the inabilities that we have in and of ourselves, and then we see in the in the narrative here ways that we tend to try to make up for that. Will you be made whole? You get three different hopes in this passage for being made whole. Three different hopes. You'll see how this is illustrated and laid out. Uh, number one... In verses 1 through 5, we see the pitiful hope of self-sufficiency. Okay, The pitiful hope of self-sufficiency. These first five verses in John chapter 5 are really, they lay out one of the saddest scenes in Scripture if we understand what's, what's really being described here. As we said earlier, it's uh, taking place in Bethesda or the pool of Bethesda, and that's the word there, Bethesda, just means the house of mercy, the house of, of kindness. If you look up a drawing, you can still see some of the remains of this uh, in actuality, but a drawing is better as far as you getting an idea of how this related to the temple and all that. You'll see that the pool of Bethesda was a pretty massive structure that was located right outside of the temple. Um, it says in our in the King James uh, in verse two that it was by the sheep market. You'll notice the word market there is italicized, which means that's not in the original text. They just put that in there. Uh, more than likely, it was by the sheep gate. 
Okay, you know, the temple was a place where they brought in animals to be sacrificed. They had to get in somehow, right? And there was a gate that was close to Bethesda that was kind of the entry gate to where they would bring those sheep in to slaughter. And so Bethesda was, again, it was this massive, massive uh, structure. It says in the text that um, it had five porches. So it was, it was a, a rectangle or a square. And all around the perimeter were these huge columns and these porches or this roof that went around the perimeter and then opened up was a massive pool. It was thought to be a place of, of healing for those with debilitating disease and, and disabilities. You can read there in verses 2 and 3 that or three and four, that they thought that at some point an angel would come and, and would stir the waters and, and whoever the first one uh, that got into those waters, after they were stirred, they would be healed. Um, if we were to really get a accurate picture of what this pool of Bethesda looked like in real time and in real life, it would really, again, be a very heartbreaking scene. Uh, on any given day, you would find large crowds of desperate people who were living with, it wasn't just disease and disability, but it was the debilitating kind that you, you can't, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't function as a productive citizen. Debilitating disease, blindness, paralysis. They were brought to this pool and they were waiting for the water to stir. Um, some descriptions of it say that there were just lame and crippled people almost piled on top of each other. You can imagine blind men and women walking around trying to figure out where in the world the water is, right? You can't see. Um, so they were waiting for the water to stir. And when it did stir, I think we would probably have a difficult time imagining what it looked like for these desperate people to compete with each other, to try to be the first person in the pool. Bethesda is kind of a strange name for this place, really. House of Mercy. Maybe a tiny glimpse of what it might have looked like whenever the waters stirred would be one of those YouTube videos of people on Black Friday who realize there's only one $10 blender left and it comes to blows because they want to save $5, you know. You know, when there's only one left, people get serious, don't they? People can, can, can allow themselves to be worked up in a frenzied desperation over something that will probably go home, maybe be used once, and then be put in the yard sale pile. Now, that's kind of comical when we think about 
Black Friday and $10 blenders. But I want you to imagine that somebody emptied every room in Le Bonheur and St. Jude and laid those kids out on a porch by a pool and then told them, watch the water. And when it stirs, if you can get yourself in there or if your parents can get you in there, you'll be healed. That, that's what we're talking about here. You have crippled people crawling over crippled people trying to get to the pool. You have desperate family members competing with desperate family members. As some, no doubt, would literally drag their, their, their loved ones to the pool in hopes of getting there first. And in verse 5, we meet a man who had been there, we don't know how long, we can assume he had been there for a long, long time. But he had been crippled for 38 years. And as Jesus interacts with this man, we find that really the only real chance he had was for somebody to pick him up and put him in. Right? Jesus says, Will you be made whole? And the man immediately answers in verse 7, and he said, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. The man was, I don't know what his, how far his disability went, but apparently he couldn't get there very quickly. And so he had a couple of problems. Number one, the someone that he desperately needed didn't exist. Right? Probably 30 some odd years of laying there waiting on someone to come and help. And then number two, after 38 years of trying, now whether it was at Bethesda or not, after 38 years of trying, this man was unable to make himself whole. Unable to make himself whole. You can imagine after 38 years, the man had probably become hopeless. Okay? You can only try for so long until you figure out this isn't working. You can only hope for so long until you come to grips with the fact that nobody's coming to help. The man was in a very desperate very pitiful circumstance. Now, the reality is, and John 5 is a real narrative about a real man, but the reality is, is that the man in John 5 is a physical representation of really what we all are spiritually if left to ourselves. Just pitiful. Pitiful. The question that Jesus asks is, will, will you be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? That is, do you want to be made complete? Do you want to be made healthy? 
could think about this from a physical standpoint. We could also think about it from a spiritual standpoint. And honestly, the question could be both. really should be both. Isaiah chapter 1 gives a description of where we are, really, spiritually. We think about Isaiah's confession in Isaiah 6 when he comes face to face with God and he says, woe unto me, I am undone. It's his condition. I'm I'm unraveling at the seams before a holy God. Isaiah chapter 1 gives us this description starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my my people, doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquities, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Okay, this, particularly verses 5 and 6 relate to Jesus' question to the paralytic, we'll call them there, in John 5. There is no soundness. Okay, this... The same concept is this wholeness. Would you be made whole? From the head all the way down to the sole of the foot. Wounds, the bruises, the sores, they've not been closed. They've not been bound up. In other words, you're in a pitiful, pitiful condition. And in and of yourself, there's no remedy for it. Try as much as you want. You can't make it any better. Whenever we think about this, and Jesus, I mean, Isaiah is really talking about the spiritual reality here. But whenever we think about this, and we think about it in light of John 5, and the, just that pitiful scene there at Bethesda, and the man that had been laying there for 38 years, it really does illustrate the fact that all of our attempts at self improvement in our own strength. It's like putting band-aids on cancer. It doesn't do anything. One of the things that we're going to find whenever we see Jesus walking and interacting throughout John, the Gospel of John, is that He is constantly working to topple these attempts of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. And one of the problems with self-sufficiency, which is a problem with really, we'll look at the, the, the other side of the ditch, same problem here, is that typically we become blind to that. We don't realize what we're doing. You recognize the symptoms far easier than you do the actual problem. 
I seriously doubt there's anybody here who's saying this is this message is resonating with me so far. I can see myself as the paralytic sitting by the pool for 38 years. I can recognize in myself this self-sufficiency where I'm trusting in what amounts to my own inability to do anything. We said after 38 years, the man must have been close to hopeless. We know he wasn't completely hopeless because he was still there, but... You know, one of the results of putting your hopes in yourself, in self-sufficiency, is that eventually you will recognize your weakness and you will accept or become complacent about areas in your life where God requires growth. It might seem kind of odd thing to talk about as far as this goes. Would you be made whole, Jesus asked the man? Would you be, would you be made whole? I think it's a question that we could ask ourselves. Would we be made whole? Whether we're thinking about this from a individual who has never been converted, of an individual who has never professed faith in Christ, or someone who seeking to walk with Christ and live as a growing Christian. I think we all recognize that there's a wholeness that's not yet been achieved, that will not yet be achieved until glorification, but we're on that road and we're seeking to grow in that. I also think most of us can identify, all of us probably can identify with coming to a point in our lives where we just get comfortable with things that God is not comfortable with. Where we feel like we've tried and tried and tried and tried and this is just going to be the way life is for me. Now, I'm not talking about suffering that's outside of your control. I'm really thinking about character flaws and sin that God would have you to find. It's just how I am now. It's just, it's just, it's just the way it is. You know, it can, it can really fly under the radar as humility. Poor, weak, and worthless. You realize that's what you're described as outside of Christ, not inside of Christ. But really the self-sufficiency that ends up leading to complacency and defeated, really a defeated mindset, it's not humility, it's pride. It's an unwillingness to believe and embrace the provisions that the Lord has given you that exist outside of yourself. We can't really give a one-to-one with this paralytic and, and the concept here, but the concept certainly exists. We seek to grow, we seek to walk, we seek to become more and more Christ-like in our own efforts. And eventually we just end up defeated. You know what this is like. To become very, very energetic and passionate about a particular area in your life. To realize that maybe an area in your life has been in shambles or just needs to be addressed. And in two weeks, your motivation has completely waned. 
Your energy has gone away. Your focus has been turned. Why? Because brothers and sisters, you may have a desire to be whole. We all do. But even you know you can't do it in your own strength. But that won't keep you from trying. Won't keep you from trying. And so our hope here, hope, the, the pitiful hope of self-sufficiency. I will try a little harder here. I will work a little harder. But I'll do it on my own. I won't use the provisions that the Lord has given me. I won't use the people that God has given me. I won't use the word that He has given me. I'll do it. It'll just be me. It's the Lone Ranger kind of a thing. Hope and self-sufficiency. It always leads to a pitiful condition. Pitiful, pitiful condition. That's the paralytic who had a desire to get better and who laid there for 38 years. Second, we see not the pitiful hope of self-sufficiency, we see the prideful hope of self-righteousness. The prideful hope of self-righteousness. Our hearts don't go out quite as tender to this side of the story. That would be the Jews. They see a man who is walking around with his bed. Now when we say bed, we're not talking about the kind of bed you're thinking about. We're probably talking about a little reed mat that he could roll up, put on his shoulder, and walk around with. It would be something that would be kind of comparable, though not even close to being as comfortable as a camping type mat. You know, one of those things that you could just roll up and be, be pretty small. The man is healed. He's walking. And the Jews really only have one question. What are you doing? Carrying that three-pound mat on the Sabbath. Don't you know you can't do that? Don't you know you can't do that? It's legalism, really. It's, it's religious man. Now, we're talking about hopes here. We know that the, the Jews found Jesus to be a stumbling block because you could not hold on to the law and the really the man-made applications and implications of the law that they had established, you couldn't hold on to those and embrace Christ at the same time. They were counter to one another. You couldn't try to establish your righteousness by making sure that you outwardly kept every little T of the law and come to Jesus for rest as an undone sinner at the same time. You couldn't do it. And so we see the Jews, representation of legalism and of religious, really what we might call just religiosity. That is, religion is where my hopes are found. This is where I'm gonna, this is where I'm gonna park it. When I say religion, I just mean religious activity. A couple of things here about legalism. We see it illustrated in the text. Number one, Legalism's allegiance is to the law, not to the God who gave the law. Okay. 
Legalism's allegiance is to the law, not to the God who gave the law. Now, what's the illustration of that? Well, the illustration of that is that the the Jews in this text are so tied to their implications and applications of the Sabbath that they get mad at God for breaking it. Isn't that something? Not even Jesus could meet their standard of holiness. Not even Jesus was was dotting the I's and crossing the T's the way they thought it should have been done. We'll look here in a minute at what, biblically, at what they were uh, what they were upset about. But just this this uh, whole matter of placing your allegiance toward the law and not the God who gave the law. Jesus speaks very clearly to this in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. He starts out in this chapter, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to read, uh, all of it, I'm really going to start with just what Jesus' pronouncement on these guys are, but starts out talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're upset about the fact that Jesus' disciples are picking grain and eating on the Sabbath and because they're doing work. And, and the first thing that Jesus points out about these guys is that they, uh, they're horribly inconsistent with their allegiance to the law. And one of the things that he points out is that they could give a rip about honoring their father and their mother, but they'll have a heart attack if you pick grain on the Sabbath. Okay, Very, very selective about what's going to be emphasized. Very selective about what a, what a mountain is and what a molehill is. But here's, his, here's Jesus' real diagnosis of these Jews in verse 8. It says, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, these people just give lip service to me. They aren't interested in me. And, and this second condemnation would apply to John chapter 5. They, they, they teach for commandments the doctrines of men. That is, we're, we're not just content with God's law, we gotta add our own law on top of that, or at least we have to add our own applications and, and implications of what the law really means. And you need us in order to be able to keep it the way it ought to be kept. So number one, legalism's allegiance is to the law, not the God who gave the law. Number two, Legalism will always emphasize a self-serving application. Legalism will always emphasize a self-serving application. Okay, so what do we mean when we say that? Well, when you look over at John chapter 5, and the, the Jews ask the man, what are you doing walking around? With your bed. It's not lawful for you to do that. Now again, this is a man, they apparently know what's happened here. This is a man who's been healed. If you were poor and diseased and, and you were at the 
pool of Bethesda, you were, you were, you didn't have any money. So he was poor. He was a peasant. That didn't bother them. And he's walking around with this mat. And they have absolutely no concern for the fact that he's been healed. Do you notice that? When, when, when the man says in verse 11, he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. You might think that a normal response would be, Who made you whole? Right? I'd love to meet him. That's not what they ask. They could care less about who made him whole. You know what they said? Take us to the guy who told you to take up your mat. Show us who's encouraging you to break our rules. You remember we said, and it was, I think it was last week, we were talking about Jesus's, really his condemnation that these people will not believe unless they have a sign. And we talked about even the signs weren't enough. These Jews are ticked off because a miracle has taken place. And a man who hadn't used his legs in 38 years is able to walk around. And they want to know who to punish. Very self-serving. So what's the law? Well, it's the Sabbath law. That's, that's obvious from the text. In Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, Uh, verse 10 says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Here's the law that the Lord laid out. You could read verse 11, but verse 10 is the prohibition to do any work. Jeremiah 17 also gives a little more of a detailed repetition of this command. Jeremiah 17. This is a condemnation to the people. You'll remember in in Jeremiah, uh, the people are about to be judged. The Babylonians are fixing to come and They're going to be used as God's chastening rod. Here's one of the condemnations. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 17, it says, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by the which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath days, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers." So here it is, do not carry any burdens on the Sabbath day. Don't do any work. Now you'll remember that the Pharisees really were a a sect that came out of 
the uh, return from captivity. And they said, look, our people were destroyed because they didn't obey the law. We're going to obey the law and then some. Okay, So they read Jeremiah 17 and they say, we're going to make that as literal as we can make it. No burden carrying. Now, when God gives this command, it is a command that the Sabbath should be kept holy. The burdens that are being mentioned here are really just day-to-day work. Okay? It's one day out of seven that you rest from your labors. Okay? That you rest from your labors. You don't treat it like every other day. But you could hardly say that a paralytic who hadn't walked in 38 years that's carrying his mat home is in violation of resting from his labors. Point number three about legalism. Legalism produces fools who don't know how to think. Legalism produces fools who don't know how to think. What they think they're doing is being wise by taking a good principle and applying it universally without any discernment at all. How could you take, again, how could you take it? Doesn't you have to be in left field to it to try and accuse a man who's been crippled for 38 years to violate in the Sabbath because he picked up his bed and walked? You have to be blind to be more mad, to be more upset about a guy carrying a three pound or a five pound reed mat then you are excited about a man who's been crippled for 38 years, who's up on his feet walking around. You've got to be nuts. Legalism will produce fools because you'll be so tied to an arbitrary rule that you can't see the forest for the trees. If you want examples of that, just read the Gospels. The Pharisees do it all the time. Third, Again, we're talking about the prideful hope of the self-righteous. Legalism will always produce, this is always, it will always produce a critical disgust of other people who don't live up to your standard. Every time. There's, There's no room for... Patience. There's no room for forbearance. There's no room for love. Because it's keep the standard the way I think it ought to be kept or you're out. Now here's what we know. They didn't mind that Jesus healed. He just didn't do it the way they thought He should have. He should have been going by their rules. This leads to the fourth observation here. Again, we're, we're, there's no hope in self-sufficiency. There's no hope in self-righteousness. This legalism produces spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Some of these are very similar that we're talking about. Now, 
These Jews are so focused on the principle that they've applied universally that they are blind to the reality that the situation they're dealing with falls outside of God's intention of the principle. They're blind. They've made a criminal out of a man who healed a paralytic. Again, because he didn't do it the way they thought he should have done it. D.A. Carson says this, he says, The Jews hear of the wonderful healing and of the formal breach of their code and interested only and are interested only in the latter. They think they see what's important, but in religious matters there are none so blind as those that are always certain that they see. None so blind as those who are always certain that they see. Again, this is a self-righteousness that he's talking about. So the pitiful hope of self-sufficiency, the prideful hope of self-righteousness, and then third, our living hope, Jesus Christ. Our living hope, Jesus Christ. We pay attention to this passage. Jesus sees the man laying there. He knew that the man had been laying there for 38 years. He goes to him. He asks him, will you be made whole? In verse 7, the man says, I don't have anybody to put me in the waters and I can't get there fast enough. Okay, The man's hope was still in the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus just simply looks at him and says, get up and take your bed and walk. Get up and take your bed and walk. What do we see here? Well, we see a pattern. I don't know that we can go so far as to try to make a pattern out of this paralytic as far as his faith goes, but we see at least a pattern of what it means for us to live on Christ as our living hope. Again, we're talking about this whether or not we're referring to someone who is not converted or whether we're talking to someone who is converted and they're just living life. How do we do this? How do we live a life of hope in Christ? Number one, out of verse 8, we take Him at His Word. We take Him at His Word. You know, this man's hopes had to be dashed before he could finally get to the place to where the true hope was found. Jesus says, would you be made well? And this guy's still fantasizing about the pool of Bethesda making him well. Jesus says, don't worry about that pool. Get up and walk. We take him at his word. Jesus says, rise, take your bed, and walk. Immediately the man was made whole and he took up his bed and he walked. What do we see there? Well, we do see that Christ does a miraculous healing. But the other thing that we see is that whenever Jesus tells this man to do something, he responds. A man whose legs hadn't worked in 38 years. Jesus tells him to get up. He gets up. Jesus tells him to take up his bed. He takes up his bed. Jesus tells him to walk. He walks. What does it mean to 
live the life of faith or to live a life of placing your hopes in Christ, well, the first thing it means is that you take Him at His word. You believe what He says. We've spent plenty of time talking about the Holy Spirit's role in that. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come, I'll give you rest. If you don't believe what He says about Himself, you'll never come. That's just the reality. John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do all things. You'll never abide in Christ if you don't believe what He says about Himself and what He says about you. So number one, we take Him at His word. Number two, we act on His commands. We act on His commands. Take up your bed and walk. The man was immediately made whole. He took up his bed and he walked the same day. Christ calls us to live a life that is characterized as dying to self. This is, this is in contrast both to trying to live a life of self-sufficiency and a life of self-righteousness. On the one hand, as we seek to follow His commands, if we try to do that in our own strength, we very quickly figure out we are not sufficient. We can't do it. On the other hand, if we try to establish our righteousness based on our following His commands or acting on His commands, we will very quickly become blinded to who we really are and what we really are. And our estimation of Christ will plummet as our pride is fueled by what we think we're doing. It's kind of a strange thing when Jesus comes back to this man, reveals who He is, and then He says, Sin no more. Sin no more. This is verse 14. Thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. So we take Him at His word. We act on His commands. Third, we we walk with Him. What that means is we are serious about fighting personal sin. Serious about fighting personal sin. You know, if you're trying to live a life that is based on your hope in Christ, you're going to be far more concerned about your sin than you are the sin of everybody else. We think about our two categories there. Self-sufficiency doesn't really care about sin after a while. Self-righteousness is way more focused on other people's sin than our own. A life of Christ, a life that's living in, in, in hope of who Christ is, what Christ has done, seeking to walk with Him by faith, we're going to take our sin very seriously. We're going to seek to walk in repentance. It's daily. We're going to seek to mortify the flesh. Jesus says, will you be made whole? Well, brothers and sisters, if we would be made whole, we must begin by putting self to death. 
pride, selfish ambition, anything that would exalt itself above the Lord, above Christ. And so the question again, will you be made whole? Well, if we say yes, then go to Him. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Abide in Him. And grow in Him. We said early on in John that part of what John is doing is giving us these different pictures of who Christ is and then filling out almost a portfolio of what it is that Christ brings. What does He bring here? Well, He's the Savior of the world that brings wholeness to crippled men. Would you be made whole? Then go to Him. Trust Him. Love Him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we confess that uh, we, we really do struggle here. Uh, Lord, we struggle with self-sufficiency. We struggle with self-righteousness. There's not an individual in this room that doesn't fall in one of those two, really in both. And so we pray that You would expose those shortcomings to us, not so we can wallow in those, but so that we can turn from those, so that we can run to You, so that we can be made whole through the sufficiency and grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that in of ourselves we are helpless. We also confess that our abilities and our attempts to keep Your law lead to nothing but bondage and self-righteousness. And so, Father, would, we, would You bless us to embrace You fully in our hearts and in our lives so that we would say that our hopes are built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.